one of the favorite uh, topics of conversation amongst pastors sometimes is the things they did not teach you in seminary. Um, in case you've never um, heard much about it, seminary is graduate school to become a pastor. It's uh, typically a Master's of Divinity degree, and um, it's actually a longer degree. It's uh, My particular one was 96 credits, and so it's almost like another undergrad degree. Uh, it takes three to four years if you're going full-time to get through, and so there's a lot that they teach you in seminary about preaching or about theology or counseling or, you know, just a variety of things. And I'm grateful for my seminary experience, but um, there's a lot that they don't teach you in seminary. And so, for instance, they didn't teach me in seminary about how to fill water balloons with jello and, more importantly, how to talk to the ladies in the church when one of those breaks while you're trying to tie it in the middle of the church kitchen. There was no class in seminary about that. There was no course or even lecture in seminary about how to talk to an eight-year-old about whether squirrels go to heaven or not, and, and then the follow-up questions that are going to come with how you answer that first level of questioning. The other thing is they don't necessarily get into some of the administration of the church, and so I don't know if I ever thought about how the little communion cups get filled. I think growing up, you know, starting attending church as a teenager, I just took for granted, you know, that maybe... There was somebody with really good hand-eye coordination who was just pouring into the little cups, or maybe they just poured it in and cleaned up the mess later, or you know, maybe there was you know, some you know, device or contraption. What I always told, told people, and this is after the fact, just to get their reaction is, you know, we go in the morning of communion, and you take a big swig, and then you spit it in all the different little, you know, the little cups, and then you go on, and you know, it goes pretty smoothly, but people usually don't like that answer a whole lot. But when I, I got to Sharptown and I was starting off in ministry about month number two or three, I was in there on the morning of the, the first Sunday of the month when we did communion, and I noticed this little contraption. And it, was, it looked like a measuring cup, and it was white, and then at the bottom of it there was like a little tube that came down. At the top there was a red button, and you would push it, and there was kind of a little plunger at the bottom, and it would let out just enough juice into the cup. And so you push the red button, and you let go, and you push the red button, and you let go, and and it held, you know, probably about a cup and a half of grape juice, and you were able to go around and fill a lot of cups quickly. And I thought, this is genius. Genius. Somebody invented this because they realized that there were all these pastors, you know, who were like taking a swig of grape juice and spitting it into different cups, and they're like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so I'm amazed sometimes at how things work. I'm not a technical person. I am not uh, good with my hands. I am not an engineer type Mindset, but I like to watch or listen to, you know, a podcast or a TV show that goes into how something is made or how something works. Even if I don't fully understand all the details, but it's nice to, to peek behind the curtain and to see this is how they do that thing. You might not think of it this way, but what I would like for us to do over the next six weeks is think about that when it comes to the cross. Now, uh, as Tina mentioned, we begin today uh, Lent, and Lent is a series, or it's a season that is 40 days, and it kind of models, and I think it's 40 days to, uh, 40 is significant inside of Scripture, either with, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, or 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, and so 40 days was chosen, but the early church uh, from the very beginning said that Sunday was a day of resurrection, Sunday was a day of celebration, and so 52 times throughout your year as a Christian, Regardless of what else is going on, there's an opportunity in the midst of it to celebrate and to worship and to be grateful that we live as a resurrection people. And so, in a sense, every Sunday is Easter Sunday because of the reality 
of what reality looks like and who Jesus is. But instead of this 40 days, so it's actually 47 days if you take out the Sundays, these 40 days is a time of searching and a time of repentance or a time of reflection on the cross to think about what redemption looks like for us. And so to to peek behind the curtain a little bit, if you will, um, what I would like for us to think about is, you know, the many different verses and the many different themes and everything that makes up what we know about the cross to get a little bit more specific with it. Because this idea of the way of the cross, that if Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, the way that that is accomplished is through the cross. And the cross then becomes not just the, the moment inside of salvation history where at a point in time and at a specific place, Jesus died. And so that is a, an event that we celebrate. It's not an idea. It's not a belief. There, there's an event that took place that marks really the, the fulcrum of human history in terms of like how things happen inside of our lives. Not just we remember that event, but that also becomes the pattern for how we live. Jesus said, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. That we live according to that same pattern. And that doesn't mean that one day you will be martyred for your faith. It doesn't mean that other people find salvation in you. But it does mean that the pattern by which Jesus lived is the pattern by which we live as well. So uh, we want to step behind that if we can and try to think about what is it in the cross that is effective? What is it inside of this event? What does it unleash? What does it undo? What does it do? And there's probably not new information there, but I think if, if we go and we plumb the depths a little bit, we can begin to take all these different verses and things that we kind of mash up together and begin to look at some of the distinctives about what actually happened in the cross. So I want to focus your attention first uh, today as we begin inside of a passage that Paul writes to uh, 1 Corinthians. This is at the outset of his letter to uh, Corinth. And he says this, "For, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate where there is the wise person, where there is the teacher of the law, where where is the philosopher of the age. Has Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... Uh, The world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's laying out here that the the rationale, that the background, the foundation of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that, in fact, if you were to uh, plan or to, you know, try to orchestrate what would take place, you would not have written it that way. Because inside of the cross, you have uh, what appears to be defeat is actually the gateway towards victory. What, what seems to be punishment and, and shame and scorn and ridicule is actually that which gives life to humanity. What takes place in the cross, and it's not just that Jesus died, but it's how he died, and, and it's the manner in which, and it's the, the shame and the disgrace that it would have been to be publicly executed uh, by a Roman government as a Jewish man, to be stripped, to be mocked, to be beaten. There's more behind that that goes into that, that God would use such an event and such, such a series of events to really turn human history on its head. That man's wisdom could never think this up, could never, you know, understand or comprehend or somehow manipulate into being God's plan for the salvation of sin, but God had to step in himself to do something. And so God chose, chose to reveal his wisdom through an unlikely means and an unlikely picture. And so the cross becomes significant for us. We have one in our home somewhere. We have them in our churches and on our churches. Maybe you wear it as a piece of jewelry. Maybe it adorns the front of your Bible. But the reality is this is a Roman torture device. And so what we celebrate is not the old rugged cross. What we celebrate is not the device of torture. What we celebrate is not even the events in and of themselves, uh, but who it is that hung there, and more specifically, even what was accomplished by the one who hung there. So Galatians says it in a similar way, uh, Paul, as he does, does in 1 Corinthians, where he says that he would boast or glory only in the cross of the Lord Jesus. So for 2,000 years, we take time and we think about the cross throughout the year, but specifically for six weeks leading up to Easter. Again, I want us to think about how do we make sense of the different images and the different metaphors, and you think of the verses inside of your New Testament that talk about the cross or that talk about the blood or that talk about Jesus' death for us, and there's a variety of different pictures that the New Testament gives us. And I think it's significant that the New Testament doesn't just give us one main primary picture for what happens, but gives us a number of them. And I want to walk down through them just a little bit, and this is kind of our our introduction. And um, sorry that it's a little bit jumbled, but I wanted it to be all on one screen for us to see. There are a variety of different um, images and metaphors, and sorry, I'm not sure what this is, uh, uh, just for... Dramatic effect every once in a while, there's a boom, you know, that uh, just keeps us awake. 
Um, the New Testament was written inside of the first century. The first century Mediterranean world where the world, you know, that people were familiar with, you know, aspects of battlefield, aspects, aspects of commerce or of courts or of ritual sacrifice. And, and so it's inside of that context that the New Testament, you know, communicates the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying if, if Jesus came today that he would choose, you know, and, and the writers that would come after him would choose a whole different set of metaphors, but maybe. I know that these are tied to specific things that an audience then would have understood and known to be the case. So let's just walk down through these. You know, the, the battle metaphors are, you know, that Christ as the one who is victorious or defeats death or the one who, you know, vanquishes Satan, the one who uh, steps in to do what we could not do, that there is victory, there's liberation. There's this conflict that seems to be taking place on a cosmic level, that the cross is the triumphant uh, victory inside of that. There's the, the suffering motif and this idea that there is one who suffered for us. And normally this is where Isaiah 53 comes in, that he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised you know, you know, for our iniquity. And it was the punishment that was brought on him was for us, and it's by his stripes that we are healed. That there's this idea that inside of the suffering of Jesus, there is something good, there is something life-giving uh, that takes place because and even through that suffering. And, and again, we, we are used to hearing those verses or singing those songs, but that really is kind of counterintuitive that that would be the case, that one would suffer in order that somebody else might be whole or happy or blessed or alive, the aspect of suffering. Representative might be a word that doesn't really stand out to you, but this, these are those kind of verses that would say that Jesus, you know, stood in our place, that he is the author of our faith, the pioneer, that he, you know, you know launched something into existence, that his death becomes actually a beginning point for us and, and for the Christian church, that he is the one who um, is really the archetype, if you will, the one who is the the beginning, the founder, the pioneer, uh, the one who launches something new in us and amongst us, the firstborn over all creation, and the one who is seated on the throne now, even after all that has taken place. The language of reconciliation, that where there was a gap, that that, that gap has been bridged, that there is a restoration of relationship, that uh, two sides that have been apart have now been joined together, that that there is healing, uh, that things have been made right and rejoined. Sacrifice, we mentioned that coming through the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus becomes that spotless lamb who is the sacrifice that lays his life down willingly for us. There's this aspect, he is an offering, and even Paul picks up the language being poured out like a drink offering. Satisfaction is not in the way that we would use it, you know, that, you know, you just ate a Snickers bar or something like that, but, but that the wrath of God has been satisfied. I think we even sing a song with Paul that talks about, you know, the wrath of God has, has been satisfied, that somehow uh, the anger that exists where a holy God uh, comes in contact with an unholy and a broken people, that there is something that has to be dealt with. And the theological word there that maybe you've heard is expiation, that somehow there has to be uh, something to do away with that enmity between us and God. Redemption, that we've been bought back, that we've been purchased, that we've, this is kind of commerce language, you know, that where there was a debt, it's been paid, or 
where there was one who has been captured, there's been a ransom that's been paid uh, for our release and for our freedom. Substitution that he took our place. He stood in. That if there was one who had to die, it was Jesus who said, let it be me and not them. Justification, this is kind of the legal terminology that once there was uh, the description guilty and now it's not guilty because of one who advocates and stands on our behalf and speaks on our behalf and intercedes for us. And then finally, the familial language, you know, that we've been adopted, that we've been brought into a family, that we are now joint heirs with Christ, and that somehow uh, there's this family relationship that once we were outside of or alienated or orphaned, and now we find ourselves included and belonging. So as I went through those, you could probably think of verses or hymns or songs or even just language that we use that kind of incorporates all each of those ten images. And they're all necessary. I'm not here to say that one is right and one is wrong or one's biblical and one's not. It's interesting to me that the New Testament writers don't choose one metaphor or one image, but at least ten. I mean, these are ten families of images. Within that, you know, there are different words and analogies and things that are brought up. And I think something as enormous as the salvation of humanity, how do you communicate that to finite people, that we don't have the mind of God, and how can we possibly wrap our minds around what God has done for us? The New Testament writers choose a variety of images. These aren't options, though. This is not a -a build-a-bear workshop where you get to come and say, I'll take one of this and one of this, and you know, I'll take a little bit of that and leave that to the side. Uh, This is not a la carte. This is, these things go together, and and the way we, we sometimes talk about it as These are necessary, but yet insufficient. They're necessary in that they all speak to a piece of what the cross is, but they are all in and of themselves, like any metaphor or analogy, eventually there's a breakdown. That none of these metaphors in and of themselves completely grasp the reality of what Jesus did for us. But one author this week talked about a little childhood toy called a kaleidoscope. And he said there's something interesting about a kaleidoscope that when you hold it up to, I guess this side would be the the side that hits your eye, when you hold it up to your eye and you look up towards the light source and you begin to turn it, there are images that you see that are different. Now again, speaking of not understanding how things are made, I thought that there were just pictures in there and you turned it and it was like turned into one picture and the other picture. And I've since found out that there are pieces of metal inside of that little tube that when the light hits them a certain way, it changes the picture of what you see. The light has not changed. The pieces of metal has not changed. Even what you bring to the table and your eye has not changed, but when you begin to turn it and you begin to see it from a different angle, the picture changes and morphs and you get a fullness that you didn't have if you just settled in on one image. And so this particular author said, I wonder when it comes to the crosses, We're just used to looking at one picture or it's a mashup. But I wonder if we begin to turn and we begin to look through the New Testament, we begin to to isolate in, there is a depth of dimension to what the cross brings, not just inside of our past of what was done for us, but what is currently being done to rework and reshape and remold us. If we were to just turn and keep our eyes focused, that we would begin to see things even deeper and more full and more beautiful. 
So in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we talk about these different images, it's not about, you know, somehow making it relative, like you can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but what's it mean to pursue the depth that if the New Testament writers choose these many different metaphors to describe it, there's a richness when we begin to put them all together and when we go a little bit deeper and we don't just make it one mix and match of one verse after another inside of that. And so I think at length there's a few questions we should ask. We should center back in on the specific event that took place because it was an event inside of human history. This is not just a belief or an idea, but this is something that actually happened. But then beyond that, I think it is healthy and a good thing and a necessary thing that we ask a couple of questions during Lent. And the first is, why did it have to happen? And in particular, it happened that way. This is not a blasphemous question or a question that you shouldn't ask. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in the cross. But it just says, I think there's wisdom there when we begin to ask, why did it have to happen in that way? Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, then what's that mean that on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of of suffering and shame? Like, why did it have to happen that way? Because I think there's a depth there when we begin to ask that question and dig a little deeper. And then the second is, what did it accomplish? So at that point in time, in 33 AD, when Jesus breathed his last, and then three days later when he rose from the dead, what actually happened? What did it accomplish? And then what does God want to continue to do within me and accomplish in me through the events of the cross? Now, all these metaphors point to some basic things, and it's the gospel message that you know to be true. Any one of these analogies, you could boil them down, and there are you know, probably others, but three primary things that get talked about. The first is that the cross demonstrates that God met our deepest need. Our deepest need is met. That when Jesus laid his life down, there was something within you that that can be different because of what he has done. Second, you know, to use the phrase once and for all, this is an event that happened once. It's an actual event and it was for everybody. This once and for all that it really happened And it makes a difference, not just for a select number of people, but it can make a difference inside of the entire scope of humanity. And each of these metaphors points towards that. And the third is that in the cross, there is a restoration to that which was broken. Whether that's a broken relationship, whether that's enmity between us and God, whether that's a, you know, the the need for an atoning sacrifice for sin, like whatever that, you know, how that need is communicated The cross once and for all steps in and brings restoration to that which was broken. So over the next several weeks, we want to grab on to probably not all 10 of those. Uh, We don't have enough time to do that, but maybe we'll group some together or, you know, pick out the main ones and begin to just go a little bit deeper. That, you know, we're used to just, you know, using these phrases, but what do they really mean to understand that Jesus paid the price that I couldn't pay? What's it really mean that he, that he stepped in and took the plates? What's it really mean that he laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice? And I think when we begin to go a little deeper, it's almost like turning a kaleidoscope, you begin to see the brilliance and the colors 
and the beauty a bit more maybe than what we have before. So that's where we're going for the next six weeks. And one of the things we're going to bring back to kind of help us do that is kind of the pastoral conversations. Uh, We started this when we first shifted to being all virtual where uh, we would do like the first half of the message and then, you know, we'd maybe sing a song and then somebody else would come out and we'd have a conversation through it. Uh, so I will warn you, we it's about 17 minutes till noon, so maybe I've gone a little bit long and I'm bringing two people up. Uh, but have no fear, we're going to manage our time well. I'm bringing two people up because they conspired against me and somehow did not tell me that today we were wearing blue jeans and blue sweaters. Um, so I'm surrounded by sweater people, but that's okay. Um, we wanted you to stand out. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, you um, are important to this mix. So. All right, nice. It's sometimes where, like, the head coach wears one color and all the assistant colors. Yeah, okay, no, never mind. That's, <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about images. Um, so I think what I'm, what I'm curious in, and um, yeah, I think we're going to put this, this slide back up that has these, um, and there may not be an easy answer to this, but Growing up, either in like your formative years of Sunday school or when your faith became your own, was there kind of a dominant metaphor inside of your understanding, either that the pastor who was influential in your life preached about more or maybe something that grabbed onto you? Is, are one of these or one or two of these kind of more dominant for you or has it just kind of been like a mashup of all of them inside of your Christian formation? I think the one that jumps out for me is substitution. Um, and the idea that when you consider all that Jesus endured in the hours leading up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself, and to think in terms of that's a death that was meant for me. I mean, he's taking our place on the cross, and and we deserve that penalty for the sin in our lives. And, you know, the, every wound he endures represents sin, and his death on the cross represents sin and it's a sin that he's taken on for our redemption yeah and that's a very common way i think that we preach it you know to really bring just the reality of what took place but then also the immediate application and so i think one of the reasons that stands out is that's one of the i won't say easy and and like you know hard or difficult but it's one of the common ways that we preach about Mm -hmm. the cross and and so yeah that makes sense but eddie uh, I mean, for me, uh, and I've shared with you guys, I've shared a lot with you guys that, um, you know, my faith journey began at camp, and I was saved at, in a, a camp setting during the summer. Uh, so for me, like a lot of the preaching came around reconciliation, redemption, and it's an older image that you see where there's a gap between me and, and God, that sin created this huge um, chasm, and that the cross bridged that gap. But if you've seen the picture of the cross kind of laying down between me and God, it became that bridge for me to, to walk across. Yeah, yeah, and that's, um, again, something that, that bridge illustration, you know, one of the main tools over the past 20 or 30 years, I don't know when it was invented, maybe before that, that, um, you know, was used to kind of illustrate that, again, that reconciliation of where there was loss or distance, you know, to be bridged. And, um, yeah, it, it, and you mentioned, you know, at camp, uh, because I think sometimes our, the context that we're in, whether where we are in life or the background or the family situation, you know, kind of does, I think, affect maybe what images kind of stand out. And, and I know at, at Asbury, there was a person I met who had been adopted, and it talked about, you know, the, as they talked, the primary image for them about salvation was, you know, they knew what it was like to not have a family and then to have a family. And so the way even they, they explained their relationship to God was was marked by that. And, and I thought that was interesting, you know, and um, 
yeah, something to, to think about. Um, how about on the other side? Do you think that we, either either we, hopefully not any of the three of us, but like we as a church in general, are there one or two of these that we neglect, that we don't talk about as much, maybe because it doesn't appeal to our culture or it's more difficult or there's less verses about it? Are there any that we like don't talk about as much as we should? I'd love to ask them that question. <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if we want to do that, but that's... Uh, uh, um, I don't know. I think probably because I think, you know, in terms of the Methodist church, you know, we're used to to going over the years having different leaders who will focus on different things. And you see it in their preaching that, you know, there's there's a theme in a lot of what they talk about. And as I look at that list, I feel like over the years it they've all been shared and discussed in various ways. But I think the one that probably is talked about the least is justification. Mm hmm. You want to stay away from legal terms? Yes. Yeah, and, and that's funny. And, and at, the, at the first service, we talked about that, and Ed Simpson was here, and I, so we decided Ed's preaching next yeah. week because he's a lawyer. So, um, you know, you should come back to that. But it's funny Living. because justification, justification of faith is one of the, you know, the primary phrase, phrases and phrases in the Protestant, res, you know, Reformation, and it's one of the things that we talk about, but we don't necessarily preach about it. No, and I think I think a part of that comes from because I've been thinking about it since the 830 service, is that we tend to sometimes stay away from that because the the concern being that people get too caught up in that, mm -hmm. yeah. that it can actually keep them yeah. from the true message of the cross. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and to piggyback on that, I mean, a lot of times when I was growing up, the battle and suffering end of things um, wasn't necessarily talked about a lot because you don't want to – it's not nice to talk about. You know, it's not clean. It's not pretty, you know – you grow up within the Methodist church as well. You know, as long as you love God, as long as your heart is good, you're, you're okay. But we don't want to talk about what Christ actually went through, you know, that, that Friday, that Saturday, that, that we don't want to go there. And it wasn't really till uh, the Passion of the Christ came out a number of years ago when you really saw the hurting, you really saw the suffering, you know, the battle that was being fought on a spiritual end and that whole spiritual warfare idea that, that we don't we don't really want to go there because it's not nice. Yeah, and and so it's again it's easy not in an easy sense, but it's convenient. It's simple to talk about Jesus died for me, or that Jesus suffered for me, or that you know he was nailed to the cross. But those are kind of left a little bit more sanded down, a little bit more rounded off, polished. Um, you know, again maybe because we don't want people to feel uncomfortable or um, whatever. But you're right. When the Passion of the Christ came out, I. I think it kind of, for a lot lot of Christians, it brought a new dimension that maybe we knew was there, but we never really thought about. Right, we never really wanted to talk about it. It kind yeah. of made it in your forefront. It was overwhelming, I think, to, on the first experience, because we do. We tend to kind of shave the edge off of, you know, yeah. trying to make it palatable for us to understand. Um, and we, I don't know that we as, as people in the 21st century could understand the yeah. dimension that that was at. Well, just thinking about the what the cross is as a visual to us. Mm -hmm. We've kind of made it a, a, a something that, I hate to use the word decorates, but you know we've got beautiful gold crosses and crosses that we put flowers on and crosses we wear around our neck, and it's something pretty, and it's it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, and it's not. It's a symbol of torture and death, yeah. and we lose that. So not every denomination does Lent. Not every local church does Lent. Why do you think... Uh, <laughs> And if you don't, don't say you don't. But, like, why do you think it's important that uh, that we, we talk about the cross for six weeks? Um, we It's part of most of our songs, right? We'll refer 
to it. We have communion once a month. It's common for us throughout the year to talk about the cross. Like, what, what good comes out of or what benefit or why is it necessary that we just jump down in and sit down in this aspect of the cross for six weeks? Well, I think the, the scripture that you shared at the beginning of your message um, where it talks about the power of God, I think that says it best. Mm-hmm. It's the power of God, and it's something that we need every day. <laughs> we need to tap into and we need to be reminded of what the cross represents in our lives every day. But by taking the time to do it every year at this point in the church's calendar year, um, I mean, we're different people today than we were a year ago. We're in a different place spiritually today than we were a year ago. And and we need those moments where, you know, we can put everything else aside and just focus on it again. And again, you know, although it's something that you've heard before, um, something new and, and fresh comes out of it, I think, because of where we are and because of what we need in our lives at that particular moment. Yeah. You stole my answer. <laughs> No, but seriously, I think it is it is season of life, you know, where I am and, and the not even just the church experiences that I've had throughout the year, but my my personal experience, the year that I've had, you know, who I was ten years ago is not the same person that I, I am right now, just in my emotional life, in my spiritual life, in my work life, you know, it has all changed. So my season of life I think has a big difference as to how I interpret those ten metaphors, um, because maybe today and I shared this in eight thirty, the familial you know, stands out more to me today because of what I'm going through in seminary and understanding what Paul meant as that we are adopted into the family of Christ. I didn't, I didn't really understand that five years ago or 10 years ago, but now today in my season of life where I am, something different is hitting me and, and the, the verses are hitting me differently and, and my understanding of them is deeper. So it's, it's hard to, to just skip over it for a year because I think who I am has changed. Yeah, and one of the, when I was reading this week about, you know, the guy who talked about the kaleidoscope you know, that contained in this particular book was, you know, people, you know, giving a counter-argument. One person said that the only danger, they said, you know, clearly there's a variety of metaphors inside of the New Testament, but the danger of the kaleidoscope imagery is that it could make it relative, right? Like, you know, you, you pick pick whatever Jesus you want, I'll pick whatever Jesus, you know, I don't, I don't really like blood and battle stuff, so I'm just going to stick with the family things, you know, you know. Bill's all about rules, so he's going to pick a little justification. And, you know, and, and it's like the build, like I said before, the build a bear workshop kind of thing where we just take a little bit of this and that. But the reality is that's not what we're doing, you know, but we do find ourselves at different points in time inside of our lives, different backgrounds, different circumstances. And, and again, it's like when you turn that kaleidoscope, it's not that you get a different picture, it's just sometimes a particular p- picture resonates more inside of this season of life or at this time. And, you know, but you need them. You need them all, and it's in the fullness that we get the biggest picture out of that. And um, yeah, and I, and I think again, there's a reason that the New Testament writers did not choose one image. Paul could have camped out in. He knew his Old Testament. He could have camped right down in sacrificial language and said, "In everything I'm going to talk about, because I want to be clear, we're writing to people who are baby Christians or not yet Christians, or we're trying to correct problems." So to be clear, everything's going to come back to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. But he doesn't. You know, he, Paul himself uses every one of these. And I think that, that speaks to then that the gospel and what it means for Jesus to be incarnate among us, the gospel is always um, hitting us right where it needs to hit us. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, 
you know, the beauty of the cross is that, yes, it's a once and for all event that took place, but, but day by day and moment by moment, the cross is also making a difference in, you know, a child in, you know, Asia and a parent in North America and a professor sitting, you know, sitting with his Bible and, and his laptop in, in Oxford and, and inside of all that, you know, the, the cross continues to make a difference. So that, that's where we're going for the next uh, six weeks. Sorry, you know, the ending here is going to be a little bit abrupt, uh, especially as these guys just shuffle off to the side. But um, there really is no major take-home, hammer, hammer the nail down here, except for the next six weeks, we're going to try to go deeper in a handful of these images, these metaphors, to, to think a little bit de- deeper, to kind of turn the kaleidoscope and focus in on the picture that we're given of what the cross did and what the cross does inside of our lives. And so maybe this week you want to think about, uh, and maybe we'll try to make available on social media or in one of our newsletter articles, uh, that list of 10. Is there one that you gravitate towards? Is there one that you really don't even fully understand or know, or maybe even it makes you a little bit uncomfortable? And to begin to wrestle with that, to think as you read through your New Testament, where you think about the songs that you sing, what is the message that we think about of what the cross did and what the cross does inside of our lives. And then our hope also, again, we are called to take up our cross and to follow him. And so this doesn't just become the means by which I know God and get to heaven, but it also becomes the means by which Jesus wants me to live that out inside of the world. And so what's that look like for us, that we begin to live a cross-centered life to the people and to the places where God is sending us? Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you today for the cross. I want to thank you for the price that was paid and for uh, the willingness that you had to step in for a problem that I couldn't solve in and of myself. And Lord, you took something that would be considered foolishness by every outside eye. And it becomes the very power of God on display. And so my prayer this morning is that that would be the case in a greater way inside of all of our lives. Lord, if there's an application point that you want to drive home inside of our lives today, Lord, I invite you to do that. Lord, over these next weeks as we think about these dimensions of of the cross, Lord, that you would take us deeper in you, but then also use us to make a difference to the people and to the places where you've called us. God, would you take what we've thought about this morning, would you multiply it, would you take it deeper, would you stir it inside of our thinking? Lord, we ask that you would just continue to meet with us and speak to our hearts even as we go from this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.